Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part three of our series about the seven-day week. Uh, if you haven't listened to the two previous parts, you should probably go do that first. This one will maybe make more sense if, if you do that. But hey, if you want to you know, fly by the, uh, the proverbial seat of your pants, let's go for it. Here we are in, in part three. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, to kick things off, I thought as a potential fun aside, I thought we might think about weeks on other planets. Uh, you know, because if we're uh, if we're going to have just a, a planet centric week based on solar days, so one complete rotation of said planet, then this is about how it all breaks down. Here on Earth, one week is 168 hours. That's okay, the normal. Yeah. T- 24 hour days, seven of those makes mm-hmm. sense. Simple math. Um, on Mercury, one week is 1,408 hours, or about 58 Earth days. So on Mercury, it, it is a hardcore TGIF mentality. Like by the time you get to the weekend, you are ready to party. Exactly. And it's even worse on Venus. I mean, we know Venus is, is a hell world. On Venus, one week is 40,824 <laughs> hours or about uh, 1,701 Earth days. Now, the really weird thing about Venus would be that I, I think it is the case that on Venus, a day is actually longer than a year, meaning that it takes the planet Venus longer to rotate on its axis than it does to go entirely around the sun, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that would mean that a week on Venus is actually more than seven years on Venus. Yeah. And again, we're just taking the idea that you know we have a solar day here on Earth, well, uh, a complete rotation is a day on another planet, and therefore seven of those would make a week on any given planet. All right, now uh, you know, we already touched on Earth. Head on out to Mars. The red planet has 25-hour days, so it's not too far off. We're talking 175-hour week. But then you go to Jupiter, well, here you have 10-hour days, so we're talking about a 70-hour week. Saturn, 11-hour days, so that's pretty easy to calculate, 77-hour weeks. Um, and then by the time we get to uh, Uranus, we're, talk- we're looking at 17-hour uh, days, so that's 119-hour weeks. And on Neptune, 16-hour days, 112-hour weeks. You know, this should all, I think, drive home how you know, nonsensical in many re- uh, respects the concept of a week or even a day is when you move off of Earth. Uh, for instance, just looking at Mars, the lack of a, uh, quote, leisurely orbiting moon, as the Planetary Society puts it, means that you, you don't really have Martian months, for example. Oh, yeah. So the year on Mars doesn't really divide into manageable time units like our months. Right. So when we come to like determining like what time it is on Mars, like that's that's ultimately a whole a whole uh, whole different topic unto itself. Uh, scientists have had to devise uh, you know different ways of thinking about time uh, regarding uh, another planet, um, and of course you can imagine how how complicated this would become if you had uh, ultimately had some sort of colonial uh, system in place on another world. Actually, you know what I just realized? I, I realized I was thinking about the, the speed of the orbits of the moons of Mars entirely in the wrong direction, right? Because I, I was thinking, oh, yeah, I, I'd forgotten how long it takes. Them. Maybe it takes them like uh, months and months on, on Earth to go around uh, Mars one time. But no, Phobos orbits Mars like once every eight hours or something, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's it's yeah, just so whizzing it's fast, around. Right? Yeah. Uh, not very leisurely. <laughs> 
So astrology, you know, I guess a, a reminder too of just uh, you know, so so man, so much of our our contemplations of time are based on uh, again, as we discussed in the first episode, the um, the observable world, the observable cosmos, right. and you're not going to have the same uh, set of stuff in place on other worlds, or it's going to mean something different, such as how long it seems to take uh, the sun to rise and then to set. Mm-hmm. So this off- obviously this leads to um, the, the next logical point is that. If you were to watch uh, the video from the Ring movies and therefore invoke the wrath of um, of, a, of, a, of a strange uh, uh, VHS tape based ghost, you would of course have seven days left to live. Those seven days would be best spent on an off world colony, uh, pre- pre- you know, preferably uh, heading on over to uh, to Venus. I think. No, I think this came up when we were actually talking about this earlier, and Rob, you and I both forgot that in the movie they explain why it takes seven days, mm-hmm. uh, because it, that's like, you know, how long the creepy ghost girl is in the well or whatever, but... But, but, yeah, Seth we, had to remind us. <laughs> Seth had to remind us, but we both forgot that. And you had the most amazing theory about the origin of the seven day curse period in the ring. And it had to do with uh, our childhood memories of Blockbuster Video. Yes. Uh, I, well, I, I, I was thinking, okay, seven, seven days. Why seven days? Seven is, a, is, is not an unlucky number in Japanese culture. Uh, it seems like four would be more fitting for that if we were going to go that route. So what is it about seven? I was thinking, well, maybe it's the seven-day rental period. Right. And because we know that, that she likes working through VHS tapes. So maybe it has to do with uh, the VHS rental cycle. Of course, what this got me wondering about is how come in the, the Ring movies, nobody ever talks back on the phone? You know, so you get the, <laughs> the phone calls like, you're cursed, seven days. How come nobody ever just like tries to negotiate? Well, you know, sometimes they have to uh, participate uh, in a survey after the call for quality assurance purposes. Right. So there is that. In reality, I think the ring videotape would probably give rise to a subculture of uh, of what what would you call them? Like uh, curse baiting scam fighters, you know, like the people who play pranks on the people who do the IRS scam phone calls, except oh. they're scamming Samara. Yeah, yeah. Th- though it is interesting when you compare the two, because when, in the fictional situation, we have a, an evil entity calling you and wishing you harm. And uh, it's, it's very much the same thing when you have somebody trying to run some sort of a, a phone scam. Like, it's, it's, almost, it's quite unsettling like, to, to, to be speaking to somebody and realize this is someone who wishes to do me great harm. Right. Uh, You've won a free cruise, but you, first you need to send us some iTunes gift cards. Yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. But, you know, this also makes me think that, okay, if uh, we have a technological ghost here, maybe to, potentially, well, not, not actually, but <laughs> within, within this argument, uh, looking to an artificial uh, cycle of time and using that as a way to, to judge some other act, it does make me think about, like, the, the, back in the old days of watching television, um, you know, there was a set TV cycle. And I'm not saying it would, was actually to the point where, like, a heavy, heavy TV consumption would make you know what day of the week it was based on what was on television but it was easy to sort of have that that line of thinking in your head you know like you, you know what what is supposed to come on on mondays you know what what is the monday night entertainment uh, versus the tuesday night uh you know the you know, movie of the week sort of thing um you could you could imagine yourself leaning into that view of the cosmos and in a sense it's kind of like ancient timekeeping it's based on the observable universe only your observable universe is what's on the television screen is usa up all night yeah, you know what day it is then. Now, as delightful as all that that is, uh, we do actually have more serious contemplations regarding the seven-day week to get to here. 
Oh, right. So uh, I guess in this episode, we're probably going to talk some more about the history of the seven-day week, like where it comes from and, and how it has changed over time. There is one paper I came across that if you want a really, really good, detailed, scholarly deep dive on this issue, uh, I would recommend uh, – this is actually not a paper, sorry. This is a book chapter in a historical uh, book by the academic publisher Brill uh, called Calendars in the Making, the Origins of Calendars from the Roman Empire to the Later Middle Ages, uh, published uh, in 2021. And this chapter is called The Seven-Day Week in the Roman Empire, Origins, Standardization, and Diffusion. And this is by Ilaria Boltrigini and Sasha Stern. And uh, both of these uh, authors are scholars of Hebrew and Jewish studies at University College London. This is a really good, really detailed chapter, but it is sort of written for scholars. Uh, so it, it's good if you want maximal detail on on the origins of the Western seven-day week, uh, given basically the, uh, our, our best picture of the evidence within the last year or so. Uh, but I just thought I would mention a few things from it that struck me as uh, as interesting for the layperson. Now, of course, they acknowledge the same thing that we've uh, mentioned several times now, which is that the the deep origins of the seven-day week are poorly understood because we don't have a founding document, really, of the seven-day week that says, here is where the week begins, and, you know, and from here on out, everybody will use it for this, that, and the other. Instead, we have little tidbits of evidence from from literary sources here and there in antiquity and occasionally from uh, from archaeological uh, finds that give evidence of people using some kind of seven-day weekly schedule in the ancient Near East, but they uh, these pieces of evidence are fragmentary, and a lot of times we don't know exactly what broader cultural conclusions to draw from them. So, for example, we know that by the first few centuries CE in the Roman Empire, people were at some level using seven-day weeks, but we don't know exactly how far this practice goes back and what all of the exact inputs on it were. Now, in the previous episode, we talked about uh, this weird scenario that has been noted by historians where th there were multiple different kinds of weeks in uh, the first few centuries CE of the Roman Empire uh, that had different numbers of days in them, which sounds terribly confusing. <laughs> but so, for example, you had this eight-day week that seemed related to commerce. So it was the eight-day market cycle. Uh, but then you also had these seven-day periods, such as the seven-day Roman astrological week, in which the days were named after gods or planets. And then also the seven-day cycle of the Jewish Sabbath, which was acknowledged uh, uh, certainly by Jews within the Roman Empire, but also by by other groups as well. Yeah, so you had these, you had uh, you know divination and religion playing a role, but you also had like the hard realities of commerce and the economy. But even you know, but none of these are, are fixed, uh, uh, you know, figures in a given world. Like they, these are things that will change over time and do. Right, and uh, so there is one point in this book chapter where Boltrigini and Stern actually disagree with something that I think we got from one of our other sources, which was um, the the book The Seven Day Circle by Eviatar Zerubavel, uh, mm -hmm. which claimed that the the uh, Jewish practice of, of observing a seven day cycle with a with a day of rest traced back to uh, Mesopotamian practices. 
But the authors of this paper actually say that despite what other authors have alleged, there's actually really no very good evidence tracing mm. the seven-day week back to ancient Egyptian or Mesopotamian practices. We, we ultimately don't know exactly where it comes from. Now, this I wonder if this explains some of the hesitancy you see to, to really nail this down in some of the other sources, like, uh, for instance, uh, Fagan and uh, Avini, um, uh, who I cited in the first episode. Oh, yeah. They were more hesitant to to put a specific origin on it. Yeah. So uh, it seems like it's still very much a topic of, um, of, of, of study and consideration, at least. But we do, of course, have literary evidence from the ancient world of places where some kind of seven-day weekly cycle are referenced. Of course, the big one is uh, is the Hebrew Bible making reference to the Sabbath. So we see the idea of a seven-day week, the days leading up to the Sabbath day in the Hebrew Bible. Though, interestingly, uh, the authors of this, uh, of this book chapter claim that in the Hebrew Bible, there are actually – no events that are said to occur on specific days of the week in the Hebrew Bible itself. Uh, dated events are dated by other methods, such as by by month or by year. Um, and this raises questions like they ask, okay, so it's clear that at some point Jews were observing a Sabbath day, but they say, for example, we don't know in the early periods if Sabbath observance was synchronized across different Jewish communities or did like local Jewish communities all have their own Sabbath cycles. But once we get closer in time to the Roman period, we do see Jewish sources making specific reference to, to things occurring on certain days of the week, uh, specifically on the Sabbath day. Uh, so, for example, they uh, reference the book of First Maccabees, which is a text from the late 2nd century BCE, and this makes reference to something occurring on the Sabbath day. They also make reference to the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are, of course, these fascinating documents from Jewish communities dating back to the uh, 2nd to 1st centuries BCE. Uh, and they say that the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, in some cases, make reference to uh, a, a calendrical system. This was kind of confusing, but I think the way I understand it is they had a year that had a different number of days than our year. I think it was 364 days, which unlike our year of 365.25 days or, or whatever, uh, that year would divide evenly into 52 weeks. So you get a whole number of weeks within the year. Mm -hmm. And this would be you know, for seven-day weeks uh, based around the observance of the Sabbath. But then they also point out that a, a seven-day Sabbath week is uh, mentioned and observed within the Greek Septuagint, which is the, the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible in, uh, in the Psalms. But one question would be, okay, why the sudden appearance of these references to things happening on uh, uh, days of the week in Jewish literature from around the second century BCE? What happened around there? Uh, so to read from the authors, they write, quote, the second century BCE invention of the seven day week is a time reckoning system, even if only theoretical or literary, may well have been related to the revival and promotion of the observance of the Sabbath, which is credited to the Maccabean rebels of the 160s, but was surely also shared and promoted by other Judean groups at the time, such as the communities described in the Qumran literature, 
and this would be the, uh, the ones associated with the Dead Sea Scrolls, mm-hmm. uh, and may have percolated further onto the diaspora in Egypt, as the papyri above mentioned possibly suggest. Promotion of Sabbath observance in this period may have elicited the conceptualization of the week as a recurring sequence of seven numbered days and as a fundamental structure of time, reckoning, and calendars. Uh, so again, this is one thing where we have to sort of speculate. We don't know for sure, but the authors here are saying it's possible that uh, we see this sort of weak consciousness emerging in Jews of the second century BCE as part of a religious revival, a sort of uh, gathering of enthusiasm for observance of the Sabbath as a as a religious practice. That of uh, but then of course this could end up having other functions within people's lives if you're observing. Uh, you know, a week leading up to the Sabbath that could serve other scheduling functions uh, if, if practiced for long enough. Though, of course, they acknowledge that we don't know exactly what role the these weekdays played in in people's day to day lives early on. Um, but uh, another thing that's important to uh, mention is that the early Jewish uses of days of the week identified a day not with a name, and, and certainly not with our names, because, of, of course, our names of the days of the week in English are derived largely from uh, pagan and astrological sources, which would have had no relevance to the ancient Jews. Uh, and instead, they identified days of the week with numbers. So this would be something like three in the Sabbath. So you would like sort of count from the Sabbath day. But then from here in the subsequent centuries, this way of reckoning days of the week appears to show up in other types of literature, such as Greek literature of the first century CE, uh, but then again, mostly in Jewish or Jewish-influenced texts. For example, the books of the New Testament. These are books written in Greek, but they're influenced by, uh, uh, by uh, Jewish religious ideas, of course. And also in the works of Josephus, these make references to days of the week, and it's a seven-day week. So, for example, the author of the Gospel of Mark, uh, this is somebody who is writing in Greek sometime in the first century CE, is writing a story of the life of Jesus. And the author of the Gospel of Mark writes that the crucifixion of Jesus took place on, quote, preparation, which is the day before the Sabbath, and writes that the resurrection was on the, quote, first of the week. Uh, so I think I'm getting those right, but that would mean that the the author here is saying that Jesus was crucified on a Friday, because it's the day before the Sabbath, which is Saturday, mm-hmm. and then that the resurrection took place on a Sunday, which was the, the first day of the week after the Sabbath. So here we've got this evidence for the, the Sabbath cycle as one of the main influences on the emergence of a seven-day week that, that we inherited and use throughout the world today. But another major influence seems to be the Roman planetary week. This is something we see evidence of in Rome and other parts of Italy, not just the city of Rome, but Rome and the Italian peninsula. Uh, and this is well attested by the end of the first century CE. Now, the Roman Astrological Week, again, this is uh, having seven days that are named after the planets or the gods associated with the planets in the uh, in the Roman system of astrology or astronomy because the, quote, planets they could observe. Again, a couple of these things are not actually planets, but they were the sun, the moon, Mars, Mercury, Jupiter, Venus, and Saturn. These are the, the moving objects in the sky that you can see without a telescope. 
And the way that the Roman astrological week was different was that it was not structured around a day of rest or a day of religious observance the way that the Jewish week was. Instead, it appears to have served a, a primarily astrological informative purpose. So it was sort of letting people know which planets reigned over or had influence over which day of the cycle. Uh, and once again, this would not have any basis in real astronomical observations or patterns. It's not like there's anything physical you can say that associates the sun with Sundays or the moon with Mondays. It's just they just happen to pair them up that way. I don't know, unless we discover something really interesting that the Romans were on to that nobody's figured out since then. Well, I mean, if, if Monday really was aligned with, uh, with the moon, we would surely see werewolf transformations on Mondays. <laughs> and uh, I, I've never heard of that being a thing. So clearly it doesn't check out. No, I, I'd say the vast majority of awus uh, occur on Fridays and Saturdays. Yes. Unless one is a real uh, you know, work beast. I don't know. Oh. And maybe, maybe you're howling when Monday comes along. That's a good point. But of course, you've been working all weekend anyway, so I don't know. Send news to the emperor that the uh, that the city has been sacked by Verk beasts. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so their paper goes into great detail, but just in a very quick summary, it seems we see increasing numbers of references to use of a seven-day week of some kind throughout the Roman Empire in the first couple of centuries CE. And again, this would be based on the Christian seven-day week that is derived from the Sabbath week, but then also using this Roman astrological seven-day week as a basis, uh, sort of the fading away of the significance of the eight-day market week. And then in uh, in the fourth century CE, you get some real moves, such as by uh, a decree by Constantine that makes Sunday sort of the official sacred day of the empire. Of course, Constantine was the uh, the first Christian emperor of Rome. Uh, and so, yeah, you see a, a big push towards standardization of the use of a seven-day week and its, uh, and its relationship to the Christian significance of Sunday as the Lord's Day or the, the day of worship. Uh, and, uh, and this being sort of standardized throughout the Roman Empire, especially in the third and fourth centuries CE. And this is the point where we can really start to say, okay, here's the week that we inherited and we can situate it well within history. So if your time machine has like Mondays, Wednesdays, and Tuesdays on it and so forth, uh, this might be as far back as you can really go this period. With perfect accuracy, yeah. Right. Also, you should probably reconsider um, the interface for your time machine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's depending on these, uh, these days. I just want to go 5,000 Mondays back. <laughs> Now, I mentioned in the first part of this series that one of the sources I'd been reading uh, for for history of the seven-day week was a UC Berkeley historian named David Henkin, who has written a book called The Week, A History of the Unnatural Rhythms That Made Us Who We Are. And uh, so the, there have been several articles out uh, and, and interviews with Henkin about this book that uh, I've drawn from here. One of the things I read was this Eon Magazine article by Hinken where he tries to to talk about some of the reasons that the week became especially salient in his view in the 19th century. That there was something that happened roughly in the 1800s in the West that made the week suddenly a much more useful and important calendar unit than it had been in centuries before. Because before that, of course, people observed the week, you know, so in medieval Europe, there was a week, but it might be more important for like tracking how long until the day you go to church or something. 
And uh, one reason that that the weak became more salient in the 1800s was the increasing proportion of society that made a living by wage labor. So working, you know, some number of hours per week for some, you know, a factory owner or in some kind of shop instead of just people working on farms and things. And of course, at this time, it would have been common for uh, wage laborers to work on Saturdays, but with Saturday representing the most common end of the seven-day weekly uh, cycle and the regular payday. So if you have a day of the seven-day cycle where the majority of people who are getting a paycheck are receiving that check, that's going to kind of change patterns of buying and consumption throughout the economy. So whatever people wanted to spend their paycheck on Saturday night might be a likely time for it. But uh, by the early 20th century, there had been an increased push among wage laborers to have uh, to have two day weekends instead of just Sunday off. And so uh, especially in the 1930s under under FDR, labor unions managed to make gains to sort of pressure it to, to, to become the norm in the United States for full time workers to have a two day weekend. So you get Saturday and Sunday off. This was formalized, I think, uh, when the U.S. passed the Fair Labor Standards Act in in 1938, which uh, made a 40-hour work week with a two-day weekend the norm in the majority of American jobs. It's easy. This is another one of those uh, examples, though, where it's easy to take it for granted and just think of like the weekend as a part of life itself. Uh, (laughs) Just imagining like you know people living in, in centuries past. And then doing them doing something on the weekend, you know, it's just uh, w- without thinking too closely about it, you can easily uh, fall into that trap of just thinking that that's this is just the the pattern of life. This is just how it works. No, the the weekend, the two day weekend is fairly new, and it's something that had to be fought for. Yeah. Hinken actually identifies a, a number of different influences that may have led to the increased uh, salience of the week in the nineteenth century. One of them is the uh, trend toward what he calls stock taking, I think a sort of accounting of one's affairs and, and one's life. I guess this could be for business or personal reasons with the use of the seven day week in the 19th century. And this would be aided by actually the proliferation of mass market diary books with pages already formatted to reflect the days of the week. So like uh, sort of the, the, Diary would arrive in your hands, not just with blank pages, but with sort of spaces for you to fill in what was going on each week or for the days of the week. And that earlier almanacs or diary books would have tended to to favor different kind of uh, calendrical organizations. I never would have imagined that, but uh, that was very interesting to me that like changes in just like printing of diary books could could play a role here. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting to to think about uh, again just how these um, at times even physical structures, uh, you know, physical layouts based on uh, the, the 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 week, the form of the week. Uh, these uh, these end up influencing the way we think about our lives, how we organize our lives, etc. So yeah, that that's uh, you can imagine how almanacs and diary books uh, would would have a huge impact because here it is, here is the week. Now fill in the week as you need to. He also points to schools as possibly playing a role in cementing weekly routines, uh, to the printing another printed product, not just diary books, but domestic manuals that would Mm. say, you know, here's a good way to run a household. And it would specify uh, certain tasks that you would do on certain days of the week. So it might say, you know, uh, Mondays are good for washing and Tuesdays for ironing. (laughs) Now, that's a lot of ironing. 
<laughs> well, you don't have to fill the whole day with ironing. But ultimately, Hinken uh, identifies as, as maybe the main contributor to the increasing importance of the weak as an organizing principle for life. Uh, what he calls commercial entertainment, voluntary association, and print culture, uh, because he says that for increasingly urban populations, people moving more towards city life and wage labor, it turned out that cycles of weeks were actually a useful way to schedule a busy voluntary life. For example, if you're planning to see friends on a regular basis, you could just know that, you know, we get together every Thursday, which would allow for the meeting to happen on schedule without everybody checking to see if they had conflicting plans. And Hinken argues that there's an interesting explanation for this. He says it was, quote, the impersonal character of urban life, uh, unquote, that gave rise to the week as a primary scheduling device because the week allowed people to, quote, coordinate recurring activities with others, including those they might not yet know. And I think this would be opposed to, in in more rural life, the idea that uh, socialization tends to be more kind of continuous and spontaneous rather than, you know, scheduled recurring activities in an otherwise busy schedule. Yeah, yeah. Though it is kind of funny how it it, it sounds like it would be easier just to say, okay, well, we're going to always do this on Thursday. Thursday is the day for this. Um, But I I know that that many of you out there probably have experience with with this situation where you set that weekly expectation. And then what happens when you get to Monday or Tuesday of that week? Someone's like, wait, actually, can we do it on Wednesday this week instead? I have a thing. What if we did it on Friday? No, Thursday is the day we decided. (laughs) That's why we have this week. And how many of those are caused by either people working outside of work hours or people just not wanting to go out and not wanting to admit it? <laughs> well, I mean, it's I, in my opinion, it's you know, it's fine if you don't want to go out. It's fine even if you want to work instead. But then don't don't bump around the uh, the, the 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 recurring uh, schedule uh, just because because you've decided to to work a little extra that day. I don't know. I'm uh, uh, like like I say, this is I think one of those things where I, I like the principle of it, but it seems to break down somewhat uh, in, in my experience. Uh, but we know, of course, that eventually the week becomes salient for basically everybody in America because it's mm-hmm. not just like city dwellers whose whose weeks are filled with lots of different kinds of scheduled activities uh, that that know about the week. Eventually, it seems like the week is something that's on everybody's mind. And uh, he mentions this. Uh, I want to read from a paragraph here. Hinken writes, quote, For those who lived in small towns and on farms, fewer activities distinguished one weekday from the next. But even they would anticipate the arrival of the weekly mail, apportion the reading of the newspaper they received every seven days, or follow the schedules of a train or stagecoach that passed through regularly on specific weekdays. As a result, generations of Americans became disciplined to the rhythms of the week that it impinged only lightly on the lives of their ancestors. Uh, so I think this is an interesting argument that it's like even if you're not living in a city and juggling a lot of uh, you know scheduled activities on a recurring basis, uh, you know maybe you're just like wor- working on a farm in the rural world. Eventually, the highly uh, scheduled nature of city life sort of stretches out uh, through through media and through tra- transportation infrastructure and and uh, communications through mail and stuff into the rest of the country. Now, one thing I was wondering about is, okay, though, what what is the direct evidence that 
people tended to become more conscious of weeks and weekdays, what day of the week it was instead of, say, what day of the month it was in the 19th century. So uh, to mention a few examples of this, he says that there is a change in trends that we can see left in what are called blank book diaries of the period. So uh, as we mentioned a minute ago, some diaries would, of course, have a pre-printed organizing principle for your entries, but some diaries would just be blank pages. And he says that in these diaries, if you examine them, you can see a natural shift in the first half of the 1800s toward a preference for identifying which day of the week it was at the top of each entry, and suddenly a greater tendency to make errors in identifying what date of the month it was instead of what day of the week it was. And uh, checking against my own experience, I feel like uh, I'm still in this this new weekday mindset because, uh, you know, or I, w- I guess I would say that weekday consciousness dominates date consciousness in my thinking. I pretty much always know what day of the week it is, but I always have to look up the numerical date unless it's Halloween or something. Yeah, yeah, it's very much uh, dealing with a publication schedule. I think makes you think like this for sure. Though I guess it would be different if you if you had a publication that say uh, only came out on the fifteenth of every month, or sure. uh, you know, you know, so bi monthly publication or something. But but other pieces of evidence for the increasing weekday consciousness. He says also in this period in the eighteen hundreds, if you examine the records of witness testimony during trials. Uh, you will see a trend toward people having a stronger memory for what day of the week something happened rather than the date mm-hmm. uh, and frequently citing uh, recurring weekly routines as sort of the anchor memory that made them sure of which day what they're, uh, what they're saying they witnessed happened on. So I don't know, maybe it was a Thursday because that is when the mail wagon arrives. And he also says uh, across this period, letters begin to show a greater preference for organizing recent memories by weeks instead of other timescales. So if you just you know read large amounts of correspondence, people talking about what's going on in their lives, they're, they're uh, more inclined to start saying, here's what happened last week or the week before that. Also, interestingly, Hinken talks about a few different examples of uh, various powers and institutions in the late 19th and early 20th centuries trying to replace the seven-day week with something else and uh, noting that that these attempts uh, failed in places where the week was already the norm. Some business interests in the West in the late 19th century uh, wanted to get rid of the seven-day week because it caused problems in bookkeeping. Mm. Uh, you might think, well, what, what would those problems be? But uh, So think about it this way. The year does not subdivide cleanly into a whole number of weeks. So you have inconsistent numbers of weeks lining up into time units that are used for bookkeeping in businesses like months or quarters or years, and this can cause confusion. For example, if you're trying to compare some performance metric between two months, but the metric you're looking at is calculated on Fridays, and then maybe you've got a month that has five Fridays, but the next month only has four. So you you start having trouble comparing things evenly across these calendar units. Oh, wow. That, that reminds me of at one point we were owned by a company that did, um, I guess we got, a, like a pay, we got our paycheck every couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And so occasionally you would have that one magic month where you got three paychecks in a given month. Oh, yeah. And, and that one wouldn't have uh, anything taken out of it for, uh, uh, for benefits and so forth. Uh, that's the vague memory I have of it anyway. Cha-ching. 
No, it's funny. You can actually Google this. There are like people who do whole web pages that are just like, here are the months in 2022 that have five Fridays. So <laughs> you'll get five paychecks. I mean, if you get a paycheck every week. Mm. Now, he also notes that uh, in the Soviet Union, I think this was in 1929, the USSR tried to change the calendar, also to to uh, change the number of days in a week and how weekends worked. I think the new system they put together was that there would be 72 weeks of five days each in every year, and this would add up to like 360 days. And then it would also have these weird interruptions supplementing it. So you would have holidays, which didn't fall on a day of the week, but instead interrupted the weekly cycle. So uh, not that they celebrated Halloween, but if you use Halloween as an example, imagine Halloween wasn't on any day of the week, but you could have a schedule that went like Friday, Saturday, Halloween, Sunday, Monday. Huh. Oh, wow. The alleged benefit of this was that it would eliminate the inefficiency of factories sitting dormant on the weekends. Uh, Mm. So, you know, because 80% of your workers would always be on duty to work the machines that day. Uh, But it apparently proved unpopular and inconvenient because people didn't always have the same day off as their friends or family. And it had some other downsides like, uh, like, you know, there, there are reasons it can sometimes be useful for production to have offline periods. Right. Like, say, there are certain maintenance uh, procedures that need to take place. Uh, Sometimes the machines need to stop. Right. So the Soviet Union actually went through a couple of different attempts at uh, different reckonings of weeks. But I think by, like, 1940, they they just went back to the regular seven-day week. Hmm. But so it's interesting that at various points, both capitalism and communism tried to kill the seven-day week, and they both failed. Yeah. I mean, once that that order is in place, once you've – uh, everything in your life has uh, has become attuned to this uh, artificial structure. Uh, it becomes resistant to change uh, because, again, think of all the the elements that have gone into it that we've discussed. You know, they're they're religious, they're they're, um, they're supernatural, they're also uh, re- related to uh, to at times actual frequencies uh, in the market. And then it just becomes the frequency of your life. Uh, so to imagine, you know, trying to shift away from that, uh, you, can, you can imagine the resistance that would take place, um, either outward or certainly inward. Like, what if we were to suddenly switch now? Like, we're, this was the decree that came down. Uh, now we're going to have just 365 one-day weeks. Uh, go. <laughs> that's, that's, that's how we're doing it. That's uh, not useful. <laughs> that wouldn't be, it wouldn't be useful. Um, even if there was some strong argument to be made for it, like you'd have, imagine like having to think about your life and time in, in that manner. Well, even if you try to put t- together a system that's not absurd in that way, but would try to be an improvement on our system, such as uh, one that's been proposed a number of times is um, changing the calendar to have uh, fixed weeks within the year so that the same date in the year would always correlate with the same fixed day of the week. So, mm-hmm. for example, maybe January 1st would always be a Sunday. The second is always a Monday. And it, it just goes on like that. Of course, the problem is, again – that the number of days in a year does not cleanly divide into seven. So the proposed fix to this is to have a couple of days at the end of the year that would be so-called blank days. These are like neutral days that are no day of the week. And then it, <laughs> and then it starts over again at the beginning of the year with the, with the fixed calendar. Can you um, imagine that, though? Can you imagine it, living your life on a day that is, that is not a day of the week? It's, yeah. 
It would feel Horrible. like, how am I supposed to think about that? What is life like on a blank day? It's probably, it's like the purge or something. You'd wake up to the sounds of the whole world screaming at once. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I was reading about this proposal in an interview with David Hinken in an article in The Atlantic. Um, and he gives a reasoning why he thinks this has never taken hold. For one thing, it would break uh, religious weekly cycles, which Christians, Muslims, and Jews tend to see mm. as a matter of tradition. These these weeks are, uh, in their view, an unbroken series going back into antiquity and in that it has some religious value. Uh, and so, of course, like trying to change the calendar could be could be taken as a as an affront to the religious traditions of the the, the main religions in the Western world. And speaking of that uh, article in the Atlantic, there's one thing uh, that the author asks David Hinken: Did the increasing consciousness of the weekly calendar, as opposed to the day of the month or whatever, in the 19th century, did it make people feel different? Did it make time feel different to people when they started thinking about it more in terms of weeks. Hmm. And Hinkins says, well, it's really hard to prove this, but he has a he has a, a sense that yes, he thinks that increasing consciousness of the seven-day time period did have an effect on people's perception of time, and that effect was that it made people feel like time was going by faster. Hmm. So to read his quote I do think that when we are more attuned to this cycle, because it's shorter than a month, it feels like time moves much more quickly. When our Mondays are different from our Tuesdays and our Wednesdays, it does kind of feel like all of a sudden it's Monday again. You can see in 19th century diary entries that more and more often people describe this feeling by referring to how another week has come and gone. Hmm. Which is funny because as soon as I read that phrase, another week has come and gone, that sounds like something extracted directly from like a, a Victorian letter or something. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, that's interesting. I wonder what you think about that. If you organize more of your life along the, the schedule of the seven-day week, does it feel like your life is happening faster than if you don't? I don't know. You know, it's it, because you also hear people saying the same thing about months and years. Where they'll yeah. say things like, oh man, March just flew by, didn't it? It just seemed like it was no time at all. Or is it really Christmas again? It's, we just did Christmas. Now it's Christmas again? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm not, not sure uh, if, if I, I mean, I, I, I believe the author here, but, um, but on the other hand, I don't know if it completely matches up with, with my experience and my experience of hearing other people talk about the passage of time. I guess we're so conscious of weeks we don't really have anything to compare it to. We like yeah. we can't remember what the passage of time felt like in the part of our lives where we didn't experience weeks. Yeah, I would say when you think outside of cat like if you're going to actually think about things that are not cleanly divided by 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 months and weeks and, and days, you know, I might think about the seasons and sometimes that gets a little harder to to think about. Like if you think about well when did when did winter actually begin for me in this part in this part of the world in which I live? And when does it seem like it is going to end? Or when did it end? And then when did it start again? Uh, and so forth. We mm-hmm. seem to have a certain fluctuation uh, here in Atlanta. Uh, but um, I, I guess when I start thinking about that, maybe it, it uh, becomes a little murkier. But um, you know, you begin to feel like it feels like it's always been winter. Well, of course, 
we get the standard time perception paradox, right, that mm-hmm. uh, has come up on the show many times before, which is that in general, uh, things that feel like they're going on for a long time in the moment vanish to a point in memory, and yeah. things that feel like they're gone in a flash in the moment tend to expand in memory. A big example seasonally that I think about is um, summers when I was a kid, you know, summers mm-hmm. off from school. It's like, when you're in it, it feels like the summer is over in an instant. You, you just have to go right back to school. But in my memory, the summers seem infinite. Yeah, they, yeah, they really did. Uh, yeah, there's and, and granted, school school summers have uh, have gotten shorter, uh, but the way they felt versus the the way they seem now, like it's it's more than can be accounted for just by uh, adding or subtracting even all month of the days. It reminds me of that uh, uh, that short story, the the one that that inspired uh, Kubrick's uh, AI movie uh, had the title "Super Toys Last All Summer Long," which uh, I always mm-hmm. really like that title because uh, you know it it implies the summers of childhood uh, and and like you say they're kind of infinite nature. Well, and to come back to weeks, uh, I think uh, one way in which the the summer experience when I was a kid was different was that, of course, during the school year, I'm highly aware of what day of the week it was. And in the summer, weeks didn't matter anymore. (laughs) That's another thing, because, yeah, I do remember more of a a wide open summer situation when I was a kid. But as a parent, like we're more like, nope, this this week we're doing this camp. And uh, it it definitely has a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday situation. Some of those days are pool days. Some of those days are pizza party days. It's It's all in the schedule. You know, there was one more thing I was thinking about getting into that is a a proposed neurological basis for uh, for the seven day a week, but uh, but maybe I'm going to save that for our listener mail episode on the the following Monday because we got a good message from a listener about it. Excellent. Well, on that note, if you have thoughts on this topic uh, that we've covered these last three episodes, the seven-day week, uh, keep them coming right in. We'd love to hear from you. Everybody has some sort of connection to this. How do these? How do the days feel to you? How does the passage of the week feel to you? Uh, anything we've discussed in these episodes is, is open game. So write in. We'd, we'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, well, this is how our week tends to go. On Monday, we do listener mail. On Tuesday, a core episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. On Wednesday, a short-form artifact or monster fact episode. On Thursday, another episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Friday, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a strange film. And then on Saturday, we have a rerun. We have a vault episode, followed by Sunday, which, of course, is the day we rest. The day we honor Soul Invictus. (laughs) Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.